and listeners to episode 14 of the Running Guy podcast, where I aim to provide informative content and interviews with elite athletes from around the world. Like in today's episode, where I'm extremely excited to be chatting to a guy that I've been following with interest for over 10 years now, as he races amongst the world's elite in both road and mountain trail racing, whilst continually building his social media presence on YouTube to share his knowledge and coaching skills with the general running community around the world. He is certainly led by example with his business and personal motto, Any Surface, Any Distance. His career has been lengthy and successful with the road ahead disappearing into the horizon. Welcome to the Running Guy podcast, Sage Kennedy. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Excited ah, to be here. Yeah, fantastic. No, great talking to you. Um, now, before we get into chatting about your running journey thus far, Sage, mate, I want to suggest a recovery modality that I've been using my whole life that I believe is the best hands down on the market for performance enhancement and load management. It's not banned by WADA. And is freely available worldwide. Do you know what what it is, mate? I have no idea. Sleep, sleep. Oh, now that's why, a big one. Why am I talking about this, mate? Because I thought I'd bring this up because you've been replying to my emails between eleven thirty at midnight your time. Yeah. So, oh yeah, you've been tracking me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I thought, you know, why isn't that guy in bed, mate? So, unless Pacer, your canine companion, has some sort of a unique secretary skills. I guess you're one of those late-to-bed athletes. Is that right? That's true, yeah. I've always uh, been a bit of a night owl. Um, even uh, my my parents are like that. My siblings are like that. Uh, and, you know, I have the luxury, being a, a professional athlete and owning my own business, that I actually don't have to wake up very early in the morning. So I will say I go to bed late, I stay up late, but I could also sleep in late yeah, pretty much sure. every day. So I'm not, I don't, I don't actually like running in the morning. So I usually, I usually get a good solid eight or nine hours of sleep every night. Um, even though I wake up much later than most of the population, probably, uh, it's a luxury to be able to sleep in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they label that pro hours, you know what I mean? When they see someone out running at nine, 10 o'clock, they say, oh, he's running pro hours, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I imagine that, mate. I know you're a big health advocate and I assume that's what you're actually, actually doing on I'm the opposite, mate. I'm sort of early, early to bed, early to rise. Um, I generally end up running, say, pro hours myself because I, I work early um, as a PT and, and in a running coach, so I'm sort of up before the sparrow even farts, and then I uh, wow. yeah, generally head out, head out running around um, yeah, nine or ten o'clock, which is just good. But uh, we're actually starting to heat up here now in summer. Um, we're hitting some some mid thirty fives next week here in Canberra, so that's oh wow about one oh five on Fahrenheit, so. Yeah. Yeah, so it's starting to warm up finally. We didn't get much spring. We tend to go straight from winter to summer this year. It was a little bit strange, the weather at the moment. Um, whereas you guys... I are... could relate to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it seems to Cause, be... Because, uh, yeah, no, it is kind of seasonal. So it does... We do have some pretty warm days in the summer here in uh, Boulder, Colorado, where I'm based. But uh, so in the summer, if I'm out camping with my girlfriend in the mountains, we'll wake up a lot earlier, sometimes at sunrise, uh, and do a big mountain run or something like that. You want to avoid the thunderstorms and avoid the heat of the day. Mm. Whereas in the winter now, transitioning where it's, you know, we've had some below freezing temperature days and nights and it'll be snowy and icy. If I wait till later in the morning, uh, a lot of times the, the bike paths and the roads and the trails get all packed down or they get plowed. So you don't have to worry about slipping and falling on ice later in the morning. It's also a, the sun comes out usually. So it's you know, at the crack of dawn, it's it's harder because it's you're more likely to slip and fall and 
have trouble in the snow in the winter time and it's yeah. really cold yeah yeah i've seen you over the years um i've been a big follower of um of the vo2 max productions here on youtube so i've been um yeah watching uh watching yourself as a person and your career grow which has been fantastic and i, I remember a couple of times you were, you were trialing you know whacking some pins and nails in in the bottom of the shoes <laughs> that was probably before people were providing you shoes but um yeah just try to get a little bit more traction so and and i was thinking i don't often see you on a treadmill that much so you obviously go searching or, or go looking for somewhere to run rather than you know do a Inga Brixton training on the uh, on the treadmills as they have to do in in you know northern Europe. So is is, is that right? Yeah. Um, well, I just, I just didn't have a gym membership for a long time, so uh, didn't really have access to a treadmill or or a weight room. But then we do have one now uh, at the at one of the local gyms, and so I will use it occasionally. I I just I get really bored on the treadmill yeah. is the main thing. Um, I'll have to listen to music. I don't think I've been on the treadmill much longer than one hour mm. at a time. Mm. So I've never done like a really long, long run on a treadmill. I've definitely done used it for some hill workouts because uh, I think it could be a good tool to use. And then on the really bitter cold days where it snows like a foot and it's like negative 10 degrees out in Boulder, I'll, I'll do some of my running on a treadmill. But it's really just a couple times a year. Uh, usually that happens. So I prefer to train outside. I think it's it's usually a better stimulus and it's it's not as boring. <laughs> but the treadmill has its place. I've I've used it a couple times over the years. Yeah, yeah. You ever sort of worry about like a, a slip or something? Obviously, it's pretty risky running on on the on the black ice and the slippery stuff. Do you ever have to be worried about about that? Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it was like really icy out and I had to do a speed workout, uh, I don't, also don't have access to an indoor track, so. Uh, the treadmill could be pretty good. Mm. It's the problem with a lot of the treadmills though at the gym is they they the maximum speed is 12 miles an hour. Sure. Yeah. So uh, what is that like? Uh, I don't know how, what kilometers per hour that is. Mm. 18? No, yeah. 20. Yeah, it'd be about. Not quite that I, fast. I, I yeah, yeah, 18, 19. Yep. So it's good for marathon pace and slower, but if you're trying to do like 400 meter repeats at a mm. 5k pace, it's it's actually not fast enough. Uh, plus, it's it's a little easier because of the the push off force and the lack of air resistance. Mm. Um, but I kind of negate that, or I, I try to level it out by putting up the incline to add more resistance. So mm. you start putting it on one one two percent incline, and then the treadmill. It also generally gets really hot and uncomfortable, mm. especially if you don't have a fan. So you're kind of fighting the the heat training too, which which does make it harder. So it it could be a good workout. Um, but I did. I went to college in the Northeast in upstate New York, uh, the state of New York in the U.S., and it was way colder there than it's been in Boulder. And then right after university, I I lived and trained in Michigan. Uh, I was sponsored by Brooks to run on the roads, and we did. I did three winters in Michigan, uh, just north of Detroit, Michigan. And though it definitely got colder there, and we were running on ice, and some people would fall and and hurt themselves, and you'd be tiptoeing around, worried about a a career-ending injury. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a, a balance, and it's tricky. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I might go to. You've just recently returned from Nepal, where you qualified to race the uh, the final of the Golden Trail Series. Um, so that's been going for two years now. So you did it last year and this year. Um, so uh, I think it was the top ten that, that qualified to to race the final in Nepal. Is that right? You had to be in the top ten to get to the final, or? Yeah, and that's the okay. big incentive, really, with the the Golden Trail Series. They just did it. They launched it two years ago. I've done it the last two years. 
I've been lucky enough to be in the top 10 the last two years. And so what it is, is this, it's a series of races, uh, iconic mountain races, all 42 K or less. And, um, they've kind of changed it up over the last two years, but there's, they score your best three races. So you could compete in all six if you want, but if they take your best three results and it's all by what place you got in the race. So if you get first place, if you're like Killian Tornet and you win a race, you get a hundred points. And then if you get second, you get like 88 points and then it goes down from there. So, uh, the better you place, the more points you get. And so after three races, uh, after the ring of steel in Scotland, it was the last race before the final, they tally up the points. And then if you're ranked in the top 10, the big incentive is they pay for you and uh, your significant other or friend or family member to travel with you to the final race. Uh, this year it was in Nepal. Last year it was in uh, South Africa. And they also pay for you know your airfare, your food, your hotel uh, for the two of you. And then they also give you a 5,000 uh, euro bonus just for being in the top 10. Uh, so it's, it's pretty lucrative with the travel benefits and being invited to travel to these races and having, uh, the series cover that cost as well as give you open prize money on top of that. If you're in the top five of each race, you get a thousand euros and, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been really cool. And you run against the best guys in the world, like, uh, Killian Jornet, he's won it. Uh, he won it this year. He won every single race he did, including the final in Nepal. So, uh, he's the guy to beat. Uh, it's kind of a legend, so it's 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 good. And there's one race is in the U.S. the Pikes Peak Marathon, which was my best race uh, this year. But the other races are mainly mountain races in Europe, uh, in Chamonix, uh, Zagama, races like that. Yeah, and uh, I was I was looking at um, some footage of that race over there in Nepal, and um, yeah, it looked absolutely brutal. Um, you know, really solid, sharp technical climbs. You know, on the way up, on the way down pretty high altitude probably higher than normal racing altitude um you know i was told the landscape's so harsh over there that uh even the mountain goats avoid that area mate so, so yeah um it looked it look pretty hard and um and we'll, we'll go we'll go to your race that you um that you did over there in pike's peak um probably a favorite of yours more more in your backyard um and you and you, you've done it numerous times and you finished um second there behind killian um, I think I think that photo that that photographer took it's and you would know it you and Killian that nice handshake at the finish line that was just a brilliant photo. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Peter Maskimo took it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he no. works for the American Trail Running Association, so yeah, yeah. he's he's a local. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good moment. Uh, it's a it's a cracker. No, that that was a great race that one. Um, yeah. So so that that sort of moved you a little bit up up in the series um with that result because i know you weren't necessarily happy um was was mont blanc part of of that series or was that it was yeah yeah yeah. so the the struggle i had (laughs) earlier in the summer was the the races already started they actually start the first race is zagama which is in basque country um northern spain in the mountains and that's in that's usually in may but I was uh, I was doing comrades this year, the comrades ultramarathon in South Africa, uh, where I saw you, and uh, I really wanted to do comrades because it's uphill year, and so I was doing a lot of road training, and uh, I finished comrades not very well, but uh, it really beat me up. But then I'd already signed up for the next race, the Mount Blanc marathon. Uh, it was three weeks later, or maybe it was two weeks. It was really close to comrades. Mm-hmm. It was a bad idea. But I was like, I need to start doing the Golden Trail series. I need to do mountain running in the summer. So 
and I love going to Chamonix, France, where the, the Mont Blanc Marathon race is. So uh, I had a really tough go around there. I, my legs were tired from comrades, I think, and I wasn't mountain trained. And I, I placed so poorly at Mont Blanc, I didn't score a single point. Uh, if you're top 30 in the races, you score at least one point. I think I was like 35th place or something at Mont Blanc, so I didn't get any points. So it didn't really even count towards the series. So then I was desperate, and I was like, I need to do i need to recover i need to train better and i need to focus on the last three races of the series but i thought i didn't have a chance at that point because uh i'd already uh blown my first shot sure sure now we'll talk about comrades um that was the first time you'd done comrades wasn't it oh no no i've i did it i did comrades in uh 2015 okay um up here and i did i did much better uh, my first time at comrades i was uh I was 15th place, 13th place if you take out the the guys that tested positive for PEDs in the top 10. Okay. Um, so I ran a six, I think it was like a six, it was close to six hours flat on yeah. the up run that year. Uh, of course, it was a little longer that year too, I think. Yeah. The finish line, finish line changed because of the construction, but uh, yeah, I've, Comrades has always, uh, been a really challenging race for me <laughs> i don't think i feel like i haven't figured it out yet but yeah this was this year is my second time uh doing comrades and i'd only do an up run really i think yeah yeah i mean it's down for the next two years so so you probably got it marked down to, to head back and try to get it right i i would like to try one day to to go back to comrades on mm. an up run and and improve my time and place uh and sure. just kind of finish strong uh, it goes well the first half, and then after about uh, yeah, after about 50k, and then things got really tough. Definitely, really, this year was was harder even than the first time. Yeah, and do you think that was like a fitness thing, and not having the right conditioning for that style of race, or was it something else going on, or any ideas? Um, yeah, no, it was definitely a fitness thing. I I I don't know. I thought I was more prepared, but. I should have known because I, in both years, in 2015, I actually had run the Boston Marathon six weeks before Comrades, and I got I got 16th place at the Boston Marathon that year in 2015. I ran 219.12 on a kind of a bad weather day at Boston, so then I was I was pretty fit going into Comrades that year. Uh, the only issue that year in 2015 was that Boston was only about six weeks before Comrades. So I don't think I quite recovered, and I wasn't able to extend my my marathon endurance for the ultra marathon distance. I was well trained for the hills, though, so I was, you know, I had I had that fitness. Whereas this year I was training for a road marathon, and I I had run the Rotterdam marathon, um, and it was it was a good, I think it was about 12 weeks before Comrades. So I thought I had ample time to recover and prepare, but I. My problem was I only ran 2:23 at Rotterdam, so it was actually one of my slower marathons, uh, and I just I didn't seem to be having uh, the the fitness that I had or the speed that I had in 2015. And I think part of it was my running form was a little off. I got a little too quad dominant, uh, and I wasn't activating my glutes and hamstrings as much as I have in the past. So kind of sloppy form, not enough power in my stride, and it led to some inefficiencies uh, that made me kind of run slower even though i tried to run a faster pace at comrades so you yeah. know I, I went for it i went for it both years at comrades i went out pretty hard so i paid the price sure sure um 
probably a good little segue there because when you say you're quite dominant, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, you're any surface, any distance, but the challenge that comes with that is running, running up mountains and running trails and then having to switch to run on roads. Like you said, you, you have to build that, that speed and that, that specific of running on the road back again so, so quickly. And, um, and once again, you're, um, you're switching focus from the mountain trail racing um, back to the roads. Um, where you're going to attempt to qualify again for the U.S. Olympic Marathon team, um, you just recently announced um, you're going to have a have a shot over there at uh, at Houston, which is um, yep. only nine weeks away, January 19. So again, um, yeah, you got to you got to make that transition, and you've I guess you've done it a few times now, having to make that transition. But what uh, I mean, what's the next nine weeks sort of involve to allow that to happen? I mean, you've made you made the um, the Olympic, uh, I guess you'd call it the Olympic Marathon um, training squad team in, in 07 and 2011. So you've been there twice before. Um, I know you just missed out um, last Olympics. Um, I think the Olympic, I think the qualifying time was 2.19 there, wasn't it, like it is this time? And um, you just missed out by 20 or 30 seconds. So you're so close. So, I mean, it's fantastic that you're... Um, that you keep trying to uh, to go from from one to another, but what's the next nine weeks? Um, uh, you know, what, what are you going to have to do to to get down to that two nineteen pace again? Oh, a lot of speed. Uh, yeah. So yeah, just to clarify, it's it's a little weird how we do it in the U.S. We actually have the Olympic trials selection race. So okay. if you run under two nineteen, you qualify for this Olympic trials race, and then actually at the Olympic trials race, if you're top three you make the U.S. Olympic team, uh, which I'm kind of too slow to do. (laughs) I've kind of known that for years. Like, I'm not going to get top three at the Olympic trials. I just want to be in the selection race uh, because it's a really special race. It only happens once every four years. Mm. You get to line up with all the best American marathon runners all in one race. It's on TV. It's it's got great coverage. There's only, uh, gosh, in, in 2012, my last Olympic trials, it was actually at Houston, there were only about 90 guys in the race, whereas I think this year maybe 200 guys have qualified in the U.S. with a, a sub-219. I'm not sure exactly on the numbers. And then my first one in 2007, uh, the standard used to be 222, but there were still only about 100, 150 guys in the race. Uh, so it's a really special race. I love to do it. I've always been missing by a couple seconds. So in 2016, I missed by 12 seconds. In this go-around for the 2020 trials, I missed by I've missed by 50 seconds so far because I tried two years ago at the Houston Marathon. I ran 219.50, so I was 50 seconds short. Gonna try one last time at Houston again. Uh, it's the last day you could run the 219 sub 219 to qualify. So uh, you know it's all the all the marbles are on the line there, but it's a good challenge because it's a really flat course and coming from the mountains, I got to do that transition again and. Uh, I never know if I have enough time to make that transition to actually run another 218 marathon. Uh, so it's 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 a good challenge. I, I work on my speed a lot. Uh, it's, it's a little harder because of the timing. This is we're going into winter here in Colorado, so uh, you know it's it's the tracks get covered in snow. It's hard to find access to a track. Like you said earlier, I sometimes have to do a treadmill workout. Uh, but I've been working on my speed. Like tomorrow, I got a session. Uh, 10 by a kilometer where I run at lactate threshold pace or, or about half marathon to 10k type of effort for these kilometer repeats. I've been doing shorter kilometer repeats. Uh, I've even been doing 
300 meter repeats, 400 meter repeats to try to get that stride uh, going fast again, getting the stride rate up, but also getting the power back in the stride on flat tarmac surfaces on the, on the track, on the road, getting used to the pounding of the, the pavement on the road surfaces and, you know, trading in my trail shoes for the Hoka road shoes and, uh, yeah, working on that, that speed, uh, mainly with shorter reps, but, you know, I'm still doing traditional marathon training long runs. I did a, a 35 K long run last week, pretty steady running, uh, over a hundred miles this week, 160 K a week. Uh, so a lot of it's easy pace, but then there's a lot of these workouts all faster than uh, marathon goal pace, which is 317, 318 per kilometer pace. Yeah, sure. So, so if, if you sort of structure down over the next nine weeks, um, are you sort of introducing more of that really short, sharp speed work towards the end of it, or is are the nine weeks fairly similar as far as the volume and, and the sort of sessions you're actually doing, or do you sort of break it down more specifically than that? Um, I, I'll, I'm going to change things maybe as I go along, but I have a general plan. Like you can't, I'm definitely not going to neglect some long runs mm. and I'm definitely going to have a few long runs be, be really hard where I actually hit close to marathon pace at the, in, you know, during the second half of a 40 K long run or a 35 K long run. Um, the speed generally I've been starting with shorter uh, like I said, the 300-meter repeats, the 400-meter repeats, uh, and the kilometer repeats. And over the next nine weeks, uh, I'm going to start extending them a bit. So I'll probably cut out the 400-meter repeats and still keep maybe the 1,000-meter repeats as my shortest effort, but then increase the, the lactate threshold, the tempo run type of efforts to being like 3K repeats or 5K repeats even, where I'm running faster than marathon pace for longer periods of time. So the length of the the intervals and the length of the repetitions will increase in distance. Uh, but then the last two weeks at taper time, I'll, I'll cut back on that kind of volume. Uh, but the general idea is, you know, this week I'm doing 10 by a kilometer. Uh, eventually, maybe I'll be doing six by two kilometers in, in two or three weeks time. Or I'll be doing uh, three times 5K, uh, and I'll, I'll kind of peak with my, my bread and butter workout of two times 8K uh, about three weeks before the race. I like to always do a session of, of two by five miles or two times 8K. I call it 40 lap pride because I do it on a track usually. Okay. Uh, two times 20 laps basically with a five minute rest. And if I could hit that uh, about six seconds, 10 seconds per kilometer faster than marathon goal pace, uh, then I know I'm, I'm getting in pretty good shape off of a high mileage week. So, um, yeah, it's a matter of extension, but for me being an ultra runner and running high mileage for so many years, it's, it's really more about getting the speed and intensity back more than anything, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you, you pretty much answered the, my next question. I was going to ask a lot of runners that will have a certain session or a certain run or a certain stretch of road that, that they go at and they do and that's always an indicator that uh whether they're on or not um and yeah you just mentioned there your bread and butter session that uh that you go down the track and that is a pretty um good indicator of, of how you're going so um yeah. um yeah it has been over the years um and it's it's kind of dangerous to say like one session is the the real key because uh it's always a mixture of of sessions and you could just have a bad day but i know last time i was in the same 
same uh, training phase basically for the Houston Marathon. This was two years ago, and uh, I did the the two by eight k session, and I ran, I ran twenty five fifty and twenty five forty uh, for the two by eight k. I did eight k and twenty five fifty. Took a five minute rest, then another eight k and about twenty five forty, uh, which was a little faster than marathon pace, but it wasn't. It wasn't quite as fast as it probably should have been, um, and then I ended up running 219.50, so I, I was too slow for my goal. Uh, so I know if I could hit that session and maybe run like 25.30 uh, for 8K two times in a row, that would probably put me in a lot better of a position. But it's hard to say because it's a mixture of, of your other workouts. Uh, the other sessions I put a lot of stock into for marathon training is how well I could do some of my long runs. So I'll do a session where I run maybe a 38K long run, and it starts off pretty steady, uh, not at marathon pace, but um, not not super easy. But then in the middle of the long run, in the second half of the long run, I'll try to do 3K or 5K segments where I'm running at marathon pace. And this will be at altitude in Boulder, Colorado. We're at about 1700 meters so it's, it's a little harder to breathe it's harder to run marathon pace a little bit um and if i could if i can't hit marathon pace for those short segments during the course of a, a long run that's usually a bad sign and that's kind of been an indicator as well uh if i'm struggling to hit the marathon pace just for little 2k or 3k segments then uh it's probably not a pace i could quite hold for the whole 42k even at sea level yeah okay and I imagine at Houston, it's um, there's going to be everyone there. I mean, huge, huge um, pack of runners trying to run that 219. So, if if there was, you know, you got a pretty good idea of where you got to go through splits and where you want to go through halfway. And if there's a group of guys that are running 30 seconds quicker, do you just let them go and sort of run, run at your at, at that pace just to get that 219, or would you, or would you think, well, maybe maybe I'll go with them and and be confident that uh, that you'll be able to hold that to the end? Uh, well, I'm actually not going to be confident that there's going to be a big pack because uh, last time there actually – there'll be a – there's a lot of guys usually through 13 miles through the first half, mm. but then usually what happens is the pack splinters, uh, and then you're kind of by yourself actually because a lot of times at a race like Houston or even Boston, uh, there's – there's some super elite guys, a lot of Kenyans and Ethiopians, maybe some top Americans that could run, you know, two two ten, two twelve, and they're gone. They're 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 off the line at two fifty five a kilometer, three flat a kilometer pace, and so then you're kind of stuck in in uh, no man's land, kind of in a gap. And there'll definitely be some guys trying to with the same goal that I have, but it's usually maybe only a handful of guys, and a lot of times they'll go out on pace, and we'll kind of work together. But yeah, after 21k, after 30k, usually the the pack falls apart. And so last time I was at Houston, I got ninth place overall in the race. But I was running all by myself the last 10k, and it was kind of a problem because that day there was a little bit of a, a headwind, uh, not a strong headwind, but there there's a little bit of a headwind in that last 10k, and you really start to feel it uh, if you're by yourself. So. Ideally, there's a pack to run with. Ideally, there's not a headwind. Uh, so you never know with the, the weather. But uh, sometimes you have to make calls during the race if I'm going to go with a guy or not. 
I usually could trust my own pacing pretty well. I, I monitor my pace, just how I feel, what the splits say. I usually try to run a pretty even pace. Um, at Houston, the first half definitely runs faster than the second half. There's less, there's a couple overpass hills in the second half, and then there's more likely to be a headwind in the last 5K. So the first half, it's, it's better to go out a little bit faster, uh, but not, not crazy fast. So the pace would be 109.30 at the half for an even pace for a 219 flat, but you have to run under 219. So I like to have a little cushion. So I'll probably try to go out in 109 flat at the half and then hope I could run a second half under 110 uh, to get me that, that sub 219. But, you know, if there's guys there with me, that would be great. Uh, you could help kind of draft behind each other and pull each other along. But uh, sometimes you can't you can't depend on other guys because they, they start running uneven paces yeah, yeah. I, I just assume the um, you said before there's possibly 200 that'll run that 219, and I think I've read or, or maybe you even said on this pod that uh, it's the last of the um, OTQ races to qualify. So I just assume there'd be 40 or 50 runners turning up at Houston to, to run that 219, but that's obviously not the case. A lot of them have already qualified at other races. Is that would that be right? Yeah, I'd say most of the people that have qualified already did it at other races so okay. uh like ideally you wouldn't pick houston to do it because it's four weeks before the the trials so yeah. even if i qualify i'll be pretty beat up going into the actual trials race mm-hmm. um i think there could be depending on the weather there could be a few of us that qualify at houston but i, I don't think there'd probably be more than five guys if any americans okay. uh sure. that'll qualify and you know even when i got 16th place at boston uh in 2015 I ran half the race by myself. There, there was a point at Boston where I was uh, maybe 10k into the race. No, it was about 20k into the race, and there was there wasn't another runner for a minute ahead of me. And then I look back over my shoulder, and there's not another runner for a minute behind me. And so you're just it's it's actually yeah it's it's lonely out there. <laughs> you're kind of in no man's land when you're running a 218 pace or a 219 pace because you got the real lead packs ahead of you running under 210 or 212 and then you've got a bunch of guys who run over 220 behind you but in between sometimes it's it's there's not very many people actually sure sure and boston that's where you set your pr wasn't it 216 something uh no i i ran uh, my pr of 216.52 at the 2011 it was uh the san diego uh, rock and roll san diego marathon okay. uh, was when i ran my my personal best but i i do consider my 21912 at Boston to be kind of on par with that because it was a really tough weather day at Boston. There was a headwind. Uh, it was freezing cold. It was kind of wet and rainy. And because I ran by myself, it was it was definitely a, a hard effort. Uh, but just getting 16th place at Boston uh, was probably an on par performance. Um, I'm proud of that performance just as much as the the faster time, uh, just because it was it was Boston. Definitely, yep. No, nah. and you should be proud. That's that's a great performance, um, mate. If we can go back to um, back to your freshman days at college, you said uh, you were at Cornell University there. Um, you studied a Bachelor of Science, is that correct? It is. Yeah, yep. yeah. Yep. I was. Uh, yep. I I moved around a lot, but it <laughs> it ended up being a Bachelor of Science. Yeah. Yep. Now, were you at that? Were you at Cornell for the studies, or were you there to compete on the track and field team, or which which one came first? Um, 
I'd say the studies first, uh, but then later on it was there for the running. Sure. Uh, so it's kind of it's a bit of both in the in the U.S. Uh, university system. Uh, you know, coming out of of high school before university, I was recruited a bit. I wasn't a, a superstar in high school. I wasn't I wasn't the state champion. I was actually the same year as uh, Galen Rupp, and we were in the same same league. Uh, Galen Rupp being the top-ranked marathon runner in the country now. Yep. Um, so I, I was pretty far behind. I wasn't heavily recruited by Cornell or very many schools, but I, I knew uh, the assistant coach had actually co-founded the website letsrun.com. And so I found out about his coaching philosophy and Cornell coaching through letsrun.com. Uh, it's kind of funny. And uh, I said, oh, I, I like his philosophy. I was on the website when I was in high school uh, still on the website, and it was a high mileage program, good studies. Uh, my brother went to another Ivy League school. He was on the East Coast as well. I have an older brother, um, so I thought I could be closer to him, and I really wanted to be a, a mechanical aerospace engineer, and Cornell University has a really good engineering program. So originally, I went to study engineering at Cornell. That's the, the college section I got accepted into, and I wanted to also run uh, NCAA Division One, which is the the highest, uh, I guess it's the it's the most competitive uh, division in in U.S. collegiate running. Basically, um, there's a lot of really good Division Two and Division Three schools and athletes too, but Division One is uh, where you get usually the most competition and the most runners that'll go professional after university. So uh, I had every opportunity to succeed academically and athletically at Cornell. I love the campus. It's out in Ithaca, New York, which is a very small town. It's kind of a small country town out out in uh, upstate New York, about four hours away from New York City. So uh, beautiful trails and waterfalls and lush forests, like really green, but also very cold in the winter. And uh, we did a lot of trail running there. And so I, I fell in love with trail running, uh, running around with my track teammates. We'd run on trails through the woods a lot. So um, yeah, I was there, but then I, I changed my major out of engineering to nutrition and then I changed it from nutrition to human development. And then I ended up in design. Uh, so then I tell people I, I majored in running in college because I got more serious with the running, probably more so than my academic studies to tell you the truth. Sure. And why did you lose your mojo for, for the engineering? What happened there? Uh, I just... I wasn't as good at math as I thought I was. <laughs> the, the mathematics uh, were, were very challenging. My freshman year, I uh, I thought I was studying hard in the exams and the tests. My test scores were not very good, uh, especially in engineering calculus and physics. And I was kind of homesick. Uh, I grew up on the West Coast in the U.S., in, in the state of Oregon. So it's pretty much as far away from uh, my parents and where I grew up across the, the U.S. that you could go uh, from the West Coast to the East Coast. So I was, I was homesick. I actually was running really poorly that year. I gained I gained about eight kilograms of, of fat uh, my freshman year. I was eating a lot of junk food, a lot of ice cream and waffles and pizza. Um, and I just, yeah, I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't studying well. Uh, I just, I felt like I, I wasn't good enough at the math mainly to keep going with engineering uh, so, and once I changed my majors, uh, it got a lot easier. <laughs> okay. 
Now you you described the uh, the uh, landscape around Cornell. It sounded like it uh, would have been good for cross country as well. Did they have a pretty solid cross country team as well as the track and field? Or yeah, yeah. So I actually cross country was a kind of my more of my sport than uh, track and field. And okay. if you're a, a long distance runner, if you're recruited to be a, a well 1500 meter runner or 5k runner or 10k runner, it's uh, pretty much accepted that you're going to run cross country in the fall. For the team uh, which is usually eight eight kilometer races and then you run 10 kilometer at regionals and 10 kilometer at nationals uh, cross country a lot of the courses are on golf courses they're not they're not too hilly or rough um, and then in this in the winter we actually had a really big indoor track season where we would run uh, for, for three months from december january february uh, when it's cold and snowy outside in the northeast we would go around and run a lot on 200 meter indoor tracks uh, and the longest event you could run there was the 5k and then you would go straight into outdoor track season where you could run 5k 10k uh, at the longest on outdoor 400 meter tracks so we, we were considered three season athletes uh, as distance runners we would do uh, fall cross country indoor track and then outdoor track and then in the summer we'd be training building base for cross country again so uh, cross country was probably my my best uh where I, I could be more competitive. Uh, I liked I liked being off on the hills and on uneven dirt and more trail running than the track. The track did not treat me as well. Sure, sure. And um, I didn't look it up recently, but I remember the 5K track time was somewhere around mid, mid-14s. mid Is that right? Yeah, I ran uh, 14.29 uh, as my 5K PR. Mm. That was actually it was actually on an indoor track when I ran that that time. I I only ran 14.31 outdoor track, um, but I was I was probably better at the 10K. My 10K was 29.47. Okay. Uh, yep. So I was I was definitely more competitive at the longer distance, the 10K, and then it was that year that I also qualified for the the marathon trials. Uh, I ran a 221 marathon when I was in at university too. So uh, that was that was I was already doing road marathons, 42k uh, when I was in in university. But then uh, yeah, for 10k cross country was was good too. But it's harder to compare times because the the courses are hilly. Mm. Now I know you've been pretty lucky, um, not having any any injuries. So you're doing a really good job there. Um, nothing that's sort of um, made you put your feet up for too long um have you um do you do you do much work in the actual gym for that or do you feel that's just um the conditioning you actually get from from running the mountains and the different terrain um i do as i've gotten older (laughs) i'm 34 now but uh yeah over the last uh out of college we had access to a gym we were lifting a little but it's mainly just stuff you could do at home uh, like I was doing some some core work uh, for the stomach muscles, the abs, uh, just five, ten minutes every day almost, uh, some push-ups, pull-ups. I have little hand weights, uh, so I won't go and do anything serious in the gym uh, for very long. It's mainly just making sure I, I stretch, but then I also build injury resistance by doing uh, a lot of those sit-ups, the core work, the push-ups. I did just recently invest in a, a hex bar, hex bar deadlift. So we have that uh, in our little apartment, and I've been using that a lot. But otherwise, it's uh, mainly just little hand weights uh, for the arms and upper body, uh, nothing too elaborate, and then a lot of push-ups and, and sit-ups. Uh, and if I have some imbalances, I'll do 
maybe some bridge exercises to activate my glutes, as well as using bands at home, some resistant bands uh, for specific movements. And then I still do some some running form drills, uh, you know, the high knees, the butt kicks, the lunges, uh, trying to stretch out the hip flexors. Um, but I've been I've been pretty lucky. Uh, I think uh, some of it's kind of genetic, some of it's your running form, some of it's you know your ability to sleep, like you said, uh, mm-hmm. being able to get a solid amount of sleep every night. Some of it's tied up with uh, diet, uh, and then it's also tied up with your training, how you. Uh, monitor your training so you're not overtraining and overextending yourself. If I feel uh, an extra ache or pain coming on, I, I usually am really conservative with it and I'll take a day off. I'm not afraid to take a day off or take a shorter day or reduce my speed. Uh, but yeah, I've been lucky not to have an overuse injury take me out for more than about one week or two weeks. Uh, usually my injuries are from falling on the trail and cutting my knee and getting stitches and then I have to take a well, that's usually only two weeks too. Mm. Yeah, I remember that uh, the incident you had was a bit scary for um, probably more of your of your parents and uh, and your girlfriend um, when you made that fall on UTMB descent there late in the night. And yep. You had to get uh, flown out by by chopper. I had you. I hope yeah, you had, yeah. Uh, hope you had travel insurance for that one. <laughs> that would have been scary. Oh, actually, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. So I fell at just before halfway uh in the race at night and i cut my knee open on a rock and had to get stitches at the 50 mile aid station at at utmb uh you know 160k race and i wanted to continue but my the knee was in so much pain and the joint had swollen up that i was worried about doing permanent damage so i i hiked my way up to the next mountain pass at uh bertone in the middle of italy in the middle of the night and I was up high on the mountain, and I, I decided I couldn't go downhill anymore because the, the knee joint hurt too much, and it, it was swollen. So they said, okay, well, the only way to down the mountain is if you go back down or we take you out on a helicopter because there's no roads, there's no cars up there. Uh, so if you stop, you're kind of stuck. And so I asked them, I said, how much will a helicopter cost? And it was only like 100 euros. So I said, okay, bring in the helicopter. Yeah, <laughs> So it was actually a pretty good deal for a, a helicopter flight in the mountains. Definitely, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but my sure. even my first ultra I did uh, four years before that, I also had, had fallen at the end of the Chuckanut 50K, and I, I, it was the same thing. I tumbled into a sharp rock, and I cut my knee open, and I had to get stitches. Uh, fortunately, in that race, it was near the end, so I was able to finish with a bloody knee, and then they stitched me up on the finish line so uh, i've had a i've had a history with uh getting some little little cuts uh from falling during trail races yeah okay um now i know you've been over here um close by over there in new zealand um you competed in the uh the tarawera ultra marathon there i think you uh, did you you've competed twice and won it twice is that correct that is yep yeah, yeah. and it was uh both courses were altered, um, so I've never run the traditional course. The first year we ran a full 100K, uh, I'm trying to think what year it was, 2013, I think, uh, was the year, 2013, 2014, I think I did it, yeah, it was 2013 and 2014 was the year I did the the race, and the second year they, they changed the course, the night before they shortened the course uh, to about 80K, because there was a... Uh, a storm coming in and they were worried about the heavy rain and the the flooding uh whereas the first year i did it it was a dry season and they were worried about uh, bushfire potential 
making the course dangerous. So we we had uh, we started near Rotorua in the Redwood Forest, and we ran. That was the start both years, but uh, it was kind of an out and back um, both years. Sure. Yeah, I, I did it last year, and they've changed now. It's um, point to point. Um, so we finished mm-hmm. it, finish it right around, and, and uh, yeah, it was a bit of a mud fest. They had heaps of rain that year, and there was mud up to the up to the knees. So had to. Oh uh, wow. Yeah. So it was it was more survival. Um, sort of had to change change the tactics on, on that day. Um, yeah, it was it was a bit of a hard day. Um, have you ever been invited um, to Australia for for any of the races? We've got some fantastic trail races here. Have you ever yeah. got an invite from one of the race directors to get you here or? I'd I'd love to do a race in Australia. Yeah, the the hundred k. Um, I know you have uh, what is it? Is the ones in the Blue Mountains as well, right? That's right. So Blue that's Mountains. that's called the UTA. So you got the fifty and the hundred k distance. Yeah, that's right. So that's on in um in my April, March, April every year. Yeah. Um, no, it's March. Yeah, no, it's on, on the May. list. Yeah. It's on the list uh, to come out to Australia. I've actually I've thought about doing even like the Gold Coast uh, Marathon before too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, fast, fast road marathon. But uh, no, I've it's yeah. Australia is very high on my list of uh, the next uh, next new new place to travel to. I've, yeah, I've I love no. the community and it just yeah, it sounds really nice. So no, you'd love no, it. I, I, I think mean, UTA. I definitely want to come out <laughs> for sure. UTA hundred, you'd love it. I mean, you'd probably get blown away with the scenery in the bushland, but it's got it's really technical. Lots of upstairs, downstairs, some solid um, solid climbs in it, um, which would probably really suit your style. So I'm sure they'd love to have you. It's recently been, been recently been bought by um by Ironman um uh, the race, but uh, you wouldn't know know it by actually doing the race. So maybe there's a few more funds there, and um yeah, definitely we'd love to see Sage Canada out here in Australia, mate. That's for sure. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, it's it's high on my list. I know you guys have such a great uh, running community, trail running, road running, ultra running, mountain running. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it'd be yeah. really, really cool to, to be able to travel there sometime. Yeah, the trail running has really taken off globally, hasn't it, the last 10 years? You must uh, must have seen that definitely yourself. A lot of people are more keen to run in the trails now than, than what they are on the roads, which is good. Yeah, no, it's it's really taken off, and it's, it's great because it's, you know, soft surfaces. You get to see a lot of beautiful areas and uh, – it's helped with the the innovation of the products, uh, nutrition products, you know, pack products, the the types of trail shoes that you could wear nowadays. And uh, I'd say in the U.S. in the U.S. it's there's still more a lot more road road marathon half marathon focus, but uh, it's the trail running's also been growing. And uh, the U.S. is also interesting too because. Uh, a lot of the trail running scene is pretty obsessed with the hundred mile distance. Yep. So it's uh it's all about going farther, hundred k, mm. or not hundred k, hundred sixty k, and trying to get into a big hundred like like Western States or Hard Rock or uh, Leadville or something like that. Whereas if you look at trail running in in other countries, uh, well, where I've been at least in in like Europe or with the Golden Trail series, it's more about just running point to point between two cities, two destinations, or running through mountain towns, and not really caring exactly what distance it is. So, uh, you know, a lot of the races in the Golden Trail series, they they are around 42k, but some of the races like Ring of Steel is like 28k, or uh, Sierra Zanal is like 
I don't know, it's like 28, 29K. They don't really care what distance it is. It's it's like 18.6 miles or something. So it's interesting to see that. And then there's a lot of sub-ultra distances too with the mountain running and trail running in, in Europe. Uh, it's, you know, UTMB is actually longer than 160K. It's almost 100, 170K, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't really matter because you're going from Chamonix through the different towns around Mont Blanc and then ending in Chamonix. So uh, it's an interesting perception. Yeah, the UTMB is obviously um, it's gained a lot of momentum and uh, they've made it a little bit easier to qualify now. Um, but um, it's probably, I'd like to do it just, uh, I can imagine, of a night time, um, as long as it's not blizzardy and uh, and rainy and, and hail, which, which can happen being European mountain weather. But I've heard people describe, um, you know, being out on those ridges and those mountains of a night time with those, you know, just a star-lit sky and uh, seeing the snakes of all the headlamps disappearing up on top of the mountains. I think that would be um, an incredible incredible uh, experience. Um, it's probably more uh, more power hiking and, and uh, technical than, than I would like. It's not, I wouldn't say it's, it, it's, a, it's a runnable race. Would you agree? Uh, it's not technical. It's okay. not very technical, I'd say, but it is a lot of power hiking because the climbs are just so long and so steep, and you're you're going for so long all night that, uh, you know, even even the top guys. Uh, that year I fell, I was in the lead pack with uh, um, the top five guys, and and we would you would have you're always reduced to a power hike. Most of the people use trekking poles. Mm. Probably eighty percent, ninety percent of the. The field at UTMB will have trekking poles uh, because you're you're power hiking so much, um, but it's it's not a technical trail. There's definitely some technical parts. Like where I fell was not even very technical. It was kind of embarrassing that I fell there. Uh, it was more like a dirt road. But uh, it's as far as like technical trail running goes, it's it's actually pretty smooth double track a lot of times, and I think part of that's because. Uh, it's a famous trek, so a lot of people like to hike the UTMB route or variants on the UTMB route. Over the summer, uh, people, hikers, trekkers, who will spend six days, seven days hiking the route. And so it's a very wide dirt trail, and yeah, it could get muddy, it could get covered in snow, but there's not really too many sharp rocks or roots in most of it. And when you go through the big aid stations, you're going through town, you're actually on streets and roads a lot so it's the downhills are very runnable and you have to be used to the quad pounding for actually running downhill pretty fast uh if you want to do well so it's it's a unique race and it's a huge challenge but definitely recommend it as a, a bucket list race it's absolutely beautiful it's brutal <laughs> it's it's a great event yeah and what do you think you might go back I'd love to go back, yeah. Okay. Just to mainly, it's like comrades. I want to redeem myself because sure. I feel like okay. I haven't, uh, I haven't done well there yet. So yep. yep. I want to go back, yeah. Yep. And um, and you've done Western States. How many times have you done Western States? Uh, just once. Okay. Just and once. from memory, you had GI issues there, nutrition sort of problems. It wasn't wasn't a great day there for you. You finished. Oh yeah. Um, it and, was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Now. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you sort of had more success with the, like the 50 mile, 80 K distances than you have since you've stepped up and, and done the hundred milers. Um, is there any reason why you feel you, you haven't, um, really nailed that distance yet? And, uh, tell me if, if I'm wrong with that, but, um, yeah. And, and leading into that also with your race nutrition, um, which, you know, 
you had to learn learn there at uh, Western States that might have been more heat related than actually getting the the um, nutrition wrong. But is your sort of fuel requirements, you know, and nutrition still, let's say, a work in progress, or do you think you're starting to learn what your body and, uh, well, I guess more importantly, what your gut can sort of tolerate and absorb, or is that something you're still trying to sort out? Oh, it's. I think it's always a work in progress because mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's. I feel like it's changed over time and it changes with weather conditions. I say mm-hmm. I have it more sorted for uh, a road marathon. In a road mm-hmm. marathon, I'm I'm pretty confident. I know exactly what I could take and how much I could handle. Whereas with the the hundred mile distance, the hundred sixty k distance, or even a hundred k, it's been a lot harder for me because there's just more time where things could go wrong. I think, and so I, I'd say I'm I'm figuring it out more in the longer ultra ultra distances, and I think uh, with the my um, I'm I haven't done as well at the longer ones because I haven't really tried as many uh, longer distance races. Whereas I've done a lot of 50ks, I've done a lot of even 80k 50 mile races. So I'm kind of more confident uh, with the shorter races and the road marathons. Uh, whereas the longer ones are more uncharted territory and it could just be genetic. Like maybe I'll always be, uh, my sweet spots, more 50 K 50 miles in the mountains. Uh, and maybe I won't run as well at a UTMB or Western States. But, uh, when I did go to Western States, I'll agree with you. It was definitely, um, it seemed like it was more of a dehydration issue and I was also just running way too fast I didn't pace myself well. So that year, it was 2016, it was an average heat year at Western States, which means it's hot. And I was uh, trying to chase down Jim Walmsley. We were both out out the front. Uh, Jim was in first, and I was in second through 100K. And we were both under course record pace that day. Um, and that was the year Jim actually got lost. He took a wrong turn. Mm. Um, and I was in second behind him, kind of by myself, but... I started struggling with stomach issues right after Forest Hill, which is the 100K mark in the race. Uh, but I was still under course record pace, but I, I probably shouldn't have gone out that fast. So I think I was just, I was working too hard. I got really dehydrated and then my stomach turned on me and I, I was uh, I was pretty sick the last uh, the last 50K of the race. I was, I was walking a lot. So uh, kind of a, a lesson learned, but uh, it it's yeah, it's it's hard with the weather and how things change over a hundred miles and what you think you might be able to handle pace wise based on your training and fitness versus what uh, you actually could handle and there's a lot of mental games with that and uh, things you, I think you just have to learn but uh, yeah I'd love to go back and, and redeem myself at, at those longer longer ultra races. So we've got UTMB, you've got to go back, redeem. You've got comrades, you've got to go back. Western States, you've got to go back. <laughs> You're a busy man. <laughs> yep, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, but I love I love the 42k mountain race distance. Uh, as I feel like as as I get older, it's it's still you still uh, could do the longer ultras pretty well. Uh, even for someone like me who's been running year round for over 20 years, uh, you know I have a big endurance base, and I'll start. You know I'm, I don't care about my 5k PR or my 10k PR as much, or even my my marathon PR, which will get harder to hit. Uh, because I focused on it for so much when I was in my 20s. Uh, but I feel like with the the longer distances, you could still be in your mid to late 30s or 40s even and still be running at a, a world-class level. Uh, there's there's guys that, you know, win Western States or win UTMB that are 
uh, even, you know, 40 years old sometimes. So I think there's still hope in the, the longer distances. Maybe you'll, you'll learn, gain more wisdom and knowledge as, as you get older and more experience and that, that'll pay into the, the longer distance success, hopefully. Yeah, for sure. Um, moving on to something else very recent, the U.S. have um, had a grey old day in Argentina, if you know what I mean, at the Mount Running Championships, um, sort of uh, alluding to the fact that Joe Gray won the, um, won the title there and then Grace and Murphy taking out the top spot there. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty good performance for the U.S. team down there in Argentina. I know you've, yeah, you've, great you've, you've raced against yeah. uh, Joe a few times. Oh yeah, yeah, Joe. We were on a U.S. mountain running team. Uh, yeah, in 2012, I ran that that event, and we were teammates. And then uh, also at Pikes Peak, the Pikes Peak Ascent uh, in 2014, we ran together. And then yeah, I've seen Joe th- throughout the years. Also, Hoka Hoka sponsored athlete now. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's his? Do you know what his um, PB is for for a road marathon? He must have a bit of speed in his legs as well. Yeah, uh, I actually, I don't think he has a trials qualifier uh, in this cycle. I think he ran 218 before, though, maybe in 2014. He's run, I think he's run 218 in the marathon. His his half marathon PB is probably even better. I think he's run uh, maybe 102, 103 in the half. And then I know his 10K PB he set recently. He ran a 28, I think it was under 2820. Uh, okay. on the track for a, a 10,000 meters but uh yeah excellent excellent mountain runner and uh yeah he does uh any service any distance although he won't venture over uh, 42k very much i know he's done a couple 50k trails but he usually his sweet spot's been more of the mountain races that are 42k or or less yeah okay yep and he's got a bit of height he looks fairly tall yeah he's definitely over over uh six feet tall uh what is that two meters <laughs> he's he's a couple inches taller than me for sure um yeah, yeah he's way taller than like a killian jornet or someone like that yeah yeah for sure um now you sort of get looked after which is fantastic by um yeah some some of the brand um sponsors such as uh hoka ono ono that we've been with for a while um and an interesting one there now your dog's named Pacer. Now you've also got a bit of a uh, a sponsorship there with the local brewery, Avery Brewery, and they've got a they've got an IPA called Pacer. Now, did you actually name your dog after a beer? Oh no, the dog was named before the beer. Oh, I think some people go. think that the beer is named after the dog, and it's it's actually not my dog. It's my uh, girlfriend's sister's dog who oh, okay. lived with us uh, uh, right. over the years, but we're still close, and we see Pacer quite a bit. Um, but yeah, they, Avery Brewing is a local, uh, Boulder craft brewery. Uh, they make a lot of different beers. Uh, this, the Pacer IPA is, uh, more of a lighter, a lighter IPA. It's, uh, only 4.5% alcohol and, uh, lower carbohydrate, but it's also supposed to still have that same hop flavor of a traditional IPA, but they probably, they make five different IPAs. So it's, uh, it's a good, uh, refreshing beer. Uh, especially on like a hotter day sure. uh they also make great lagers and some really strong heavy stouts as well but uh yeah pacer's a good running dog and the beer's a good beer for um for people after a, a race or a hard effort <laughs> it's refreshing yeah yeah no definitely definitely um 
Now you're a, you're a plant-based food um, athlete, um, a vegan athlete. Now, do you find that that's that diet really? I mean, I know you've you were sort of uh, vegetarian before you were vegan, but uh, I know a lot of people have gone to plant-based and they actually find their body just recovers a hell of a lot better, better from the, from the training. Um, so it's it's hard for you for you to say, compare one one to another. But um, do you find that uh, a lot more athletes are, are heading over to to the plant-based diet just due to um, not only the energy levels but the, the way they're actually um, pulling up and, and recovering from training? Um, it's hard to say. I think uh, the shift has been also from eating less less processed foods mm-hmm. to just trying to eat more whole foods. So uh, I still have a, a sweet tooth for for cakes and desserts i still eat uh, my pizzas and, and things like that ice cream even they have vegan ice cream uh which obviously isn't as as good for you being full of refined sugar it's more processed versus eating something like fruit or eating uh, a, a lot of salads and vegetables and i think the, th- the benefit with that is you get a lot of antioxidants uh which help with your muscle repair and uh damage and oxidative stress on your body so uh, it's more about staying hydrated, getting in those those vitamins and nutrients, uh, but then also making sure you get a good blend of uh, amino acids, the building blocks of, of protein, and as, as well as staying on top of your vitamin levels. Uh, but I think it's it's been a general shift, at least in the uh, a lot of the countries or the cities in Europe that I've been in, as well as in the U.S. Uh, major cities where you see more options in the restaurants, and it's it's labeled on the menu. I I could go out and I say, oh, I could find a veggie burger now. And it's not this weird thing where people look at you like you're crazy that mm-hmm. you want a veggie burger. So I, I think in in even outside of athletes, it's just a, a general trend where there's more uh, plant-based options for everyone. Um, but I definitely know quite a few athletes that I've, I've found out, out over the years that are, are vegetarian or, um, you know, there's, there's great athletes that eat all sorts of different diets uh for sure but um i think it's generally it's been growing a bit uh over the last especially the last five five years yeah for sure for sure um now you wear hokers because um they're your main sponsor um there's a lot of um a lot of talk about um about the nike vaporfly mate are, are you always like are you curious or keen to sort of i don't know put on a mask and go at midnight where you don't get recognized to actually see what the fuss is all about no um i wouldn't do that but uh (laughs) i think it's a very expensive shoe uh so i i i the thing that bothers me i guess about it is partly the the price point being so high for Mm. for anybody uh well any non-sponsored athlete and then the the idea of um with road marathon runners, we see it's it's uh, definitely more of an issue. I'm I think I'm kind of lucky that because I'm sponsored to be a, a trail running athlete, uh, that it's it wouldn't ever work on the trails. Uh, even carbon fiber plates not going to help you as much. And Hoka does have have a couple carbon fiber shoes uh, like the Carbon Rocket and the uh, Carbon X. But on the trails, it's not something that you would want to wear generally because trails are too uneven and they're too technical and you actually have to use uh, more of your foot uh, and engage more. So with the roads, it's it's hard to say. Um, I, I don't know the exact specifications of the design or 
Uh, I know they've done some biomechanics studies here in, in Boulder. Uh, at the, they have a big lab here at the university, and they've done some efficiency studies with that shoe. I think it was part of how they labeled it as, as the 4%, and now there's the, uh, what is I don't even know what it's called, the next percent or the 5% or yep, next percent, uh, paperfly. Yep. Yeah, um, so but yeah, I could definitely see how a carbon fiber, a curved carbon fiber blade might start getting into the realm of what is propulsive, uh, because you know they've banned shoes with springs in the past, and I think the the question from like a physics standpoint or a design standpoint is, how much is this shoe acting like a like a spring, even though it's a a curved carbon fiber plate, and you know what is the role of the carbon fiber plate versus Nike's midsole technology with the the type of foam they're using that they sandwich the plate in. Um, but I don't know. I don't know the details. Mm. I'm sure it's it's like a shoe war between the between the brands. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, um, other people looking into it and the other shoe manufacturers or other athletes who, who are unable to wear it have um, sort of said, you know, they're getting an unfair advantage. But, um, yeah, I, I believe a, a lot of the... Um, the feeling or the response that people are actually getting is probably more more the foam than the actual carbon plate, but that's that's my thought on it. And I, I, know, I know, like you mentioned, Hoka have, have brought in a carbon plate shoe, and a, and a lot of other manufacturers are trying to do that. I believe there's a few patents that Nike have uh, put down um, to sort of cover cover their tracks a little bit there. But yeah, I mean, obviously everyone's wearing, everyone loves loves the feeling of it. So I was just curious if you just you know out of curiosity just want to actually see how it actually felt under underfoot. That's all, yeah. Um, no, that would violate my contract. Yeah, that's been, right. That's right. Hoka for uh, this is my sixth year as a Hoka One One athlete, and you know I don't worry about it as much because I'm not sponsored to be a, a road marathon runner or a track runner. Yep. Um, and Hoka does make track spikes too, actually. But uh, I think in trail running, the field is is level more, and. Uh, yeah, the price point of the shoe is is a little concerning as well, uh, yeah. just because it it becomes a an issue. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. hard to say. Sure, and um and obviously you're a pretty outspoken um sort of um I'm not sure what the actual tagline they call it, but basically race clean. Um, you know, um trying to promote um you know trying trying to put a stance on on people who are cheating cheating in the sport taking um performance enhancing drugs or whatever it might actually be um is do you do you feel i mean obviously we need to be doing doing more um and some of it has crept in into trail racing um do you think uh have you got any suggestions or a- any thoughts or or what, what what we could be doing better um as far as out of out of competition testing or do you think well, I mean, do you basically think we 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 need to improve on on, on the current standard is oh yeah no definitely uh i use the hashtag clean sport but uh yeah it's uh it's something i'm obviously biased in because i i compete as a professional and compete for prize money and sponsorship slots and uh like i said when i was talking about comrades 2015 i said well i was, I was 15th across the line uh, but I, there were two guys that tested positive on the day for uh, PEDs, performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, so I really say I got 13th at Comrades, uh, fair and square more. Um, but in, in, you see it in, in track running and, and road running where there's a lot more prize money on the line. Uh, but in trail running, I think it's, it's also very prevalent. Uh, there's been a story of a guy that was taking 
EPO, uh, who got top, top top 10, I think he was actually sixth at UTMB one of those years. And they did have some sort of drug testing at the finish of UTMB. So that was good to see uh, more race day drug testing. But uh, I haven't been tested that much in my career, honestly, uh, real drug testing. And uh, it's only really been at, at Pikes Peak when I won the, the mountain running uh, championships at the Pikes Peak Ascent in 2014. Uh, but with the amount of prize money and perks on the line, I'd say there definitely needs to be more testing in, in mountain ultra trail running because it's not 100% clean. And uh, the benefits, I think, are, are pretty big. Like I've been fortunate enough to get sponsorship, career-changing sponsorship. Uh, I've gotten tens of thousands of dollars in travel benefits over the years, gotten to live my dream and travel around the world. Uh, you get free gear and, and shoes and, and clothing. And I think part of it's tied up in ego too with uh, getting more social media followers, more likes on Instagram. Uh, some people might be tempted to you know, take a little extra, uh, take some EPO or something like that. Uh, that's not as expensive, I think, as most people think. And you know, if it pays off for uh, tens of thousands of dollars in, in benefits, it could be something that I'd imagine uh, some top-ranked mountain ultra trail runners are actually doing because uh, you don't have to worry about getting caught very much uh, unless you go to a certain race where you know the test is going to happen. But then you could just taper off uh, two or three weeks before the race and probably get around it. So you don't even need a, a sophisticated Lance Armstrong type of program. Uh, you really just, uh, yeah, there's, there needs to be more testing. And I think the question is where the money comes from. I'd be willing to pay my own licensing fee as a professional, maybe you know, 400, 500 USD a year. If you get the top 50 ranked trail runners in the world all contributing into this fund, there would be at least some money for some random tests maybe throughout the year carried out by a third party under world anti-doping agency rules and restrictions. Because uh, if, if you're facing a risk of getting banned from the sport and there's a peer pressure type of uh, element to it, I think that's probably going to be the most effective thing is out-of-season, out-of-race competition, testing for actual drugs, and then uh, the peer pressure to compete clean, to complete, compete to the best of your ability, not take things like EPO, uh, especially the heavy hitters is what I'm, I'm worried about. Like EPO uh, would be a, a big one. Sure. So do you sort of have to mentally put that sort of behind you when you turn up to a race, prepare the best, you know, and not, not think about, this person could be doing that. I've heard this person doing this. So it's just a matter of turning up, doing your best race, and just hopefully, um, hopefully they do get caught if they are taking something. I mean, it must be hard to sometimes because, like you said, like you're a professional runner. You, know, you sort of rely on on that income, um, and you work your butt off um, out there to perform, and uh, and to sort of sometimes think, you know, that someone who finishes in front of you is, is taking a piece of that pie. Uh, it must be sort of hard to not let that distract, um, you know, your mindset. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely hard. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely, uh, something I'm pretty passionate about and, and think about. And I know, uh, other sponsored runners do too. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a tough situation. I think, uh, trail running though, in general is, is more clean than, uh, even the road, road marathon running and, uh, even sports like cycling, I think it would be much more difficult. So I'm thankful for that. And uh, yeah, it's uh, 
you know, there is less money in professional mountain ultra trail running than those other sports or big sports. But at the same time, I think it's, it's a matter of, uh, just, uh, principle, honesty, integrity, uh, competing to the best of your ability. Like, uh, if you were running a trail race and you, you were going off course and cutting the race distance, like that would be the same sort of feeling that I, I would get from someone taking drugs. It's like, taking like literally taking a shortcut during a race cutting off the distance and cutting you know not following the rules uh so i kind of feel feel like like that but yeah just showing people that you could do uh naturally through hard work you could uh improve yourself and and still compete uh is important example for the younger runners i think too and it, and a health thing too a lot of those those peds aren't good after you get an old age, I don't think they'll they'll be good for you either. So yeah, there's that sure. too. For sure. Look, mate, I've taken a lot of your time here on a Friday night. Uh, it is over there, Boulder on a Friday night. You're probably uh, taking Sandy out on a hot date, I imagine. Oh, we did that. <laughs> we did that yesterday night. But yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Definitely. Yeah. Getting ready for dinner, yeah. Yeah, yeah for, for sure. sure. For sure. You and Sandy have been an item for a while, mate. Those uh, church bells that are ringing in the distance must be getting a little bit louder these days. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, going on six seven years so she yeah, also yeah. uh co-founded our our coaching business uh sagerunning.com where yep. we sell uh training plans she developed all the the plans for me any or with me any service any distance and uh does coaching there so it's yep. been a, a big part of our lives yeah yeah no fantastic oh well, mate, thank you so much for your um for your time tonight being a guest on the runner guy podcast um mate all the best with your training for that otq over there in houston um and all the um all the other future races well i might just ask after the um otq what what's the plan for the rest of 2020 oh i haven't decided uh anything concrete yet i'll probably uh take a little break after the road marathons uh i mean hopefully if i if i qualify i'll be doing the olympic trials in february but then after that i'll definitely need to take some downtime maybe try to get into some skiing or something even uh and then focus on uh I, there's a good chance I'll do the Golden Trail Series again uh, and focus on Pikes Peak because uh, I've really enjoyed that over the years. So um, like to do some more some more mountain racing still. Sure. Yep. All right, mate. Um, if I can put some of your social links and uh, and sponsors in the show details below, um, just so the listeners could uh, check it out and follow follow along Sage Canada because you're clearly struggling to get the numbers up there with your following. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you've, uh, you're only up about 50, 100,000, so we'll get a few more for you. Um, oh, appreciate it, yeah. Yeah, no, awesome, um, mate. On YouTube at uh, VO2Max Productions, but uh, if you just search my name, you could find some videos on the YouTube. And then on Instagram and Twitter, at Sage Canada. Uh, it's just my full name. And then, uh, like I mentioned before, uh, running business plug, um, my partner, Sandy Nightpaver, and I, uh, we co-founded sagerunning.com where we sell training plans and uh, do coaching and we have free re- resources on there. Also on, on social media at Sage Running. Uh, and then, yeah, title sponsor, uh, Hoka One One. Uh, I've been with them for six years now as a mountain ultra trail athlete and, uh, yeah, been really happy with it. So yeah, thanks. You've even, you haven't got a gel named after you. Oh yeah. The spring energy, uh, my spring energy, uh, well, the company's called Spring Energy, but their mm. their tag uh, is My Spring Energy on one of their handles. I forget which one now. Yeah, um, yeah the the Canterbury uh, strawberry flavored natural uh, naturally produced energy gel. 
Yeah. Um, it's made with, it's got a rice base, but it also has like strawberries ground up and bananas in it. So it's a kind of a fruity gel, but natural energy, uh, vegan. So yeah, I've been fortunate to have that and Avery yeah. Brewing Company, <laughs> Boulder, Colorado. For sure. Probably hard to find in Australia there, but <laughs> <laughs> that's a good make their I'll, way I'll, around. Yeah. I like all those hyperlinks in, in the notes below, mate. Um, but yeah, no. Look, thanks heaps, Sage. Look, I, I personally is sort of looking forward to seeing how the uh, the remaining chapters of the uh, story uh, of the Sage story unfolds, mate. And uh, no, thank you. It's thanks. been a good read so far, mate. And um, and thanks, so, mate. And uh, try to get to bed early a little bit tonight, mate. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> you get, you get yeah, to sleep yeah. in. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sage. Thank you. Yeah. Keep up the great work. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate no it. No worries. Thanks, Sage. All right. Bye. Bye, mate. All right, guys. Hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for tuning into the Running Guy podcast again. Hit the follow button if you haven't already. Follow the links in the show description below. Over to uh, join the conversation on my social media handles. Uh, become a member of the Running Guy podcast driver club, as well as the link over to the Running Guy coaching website. Train hard, recover harder. See ya.